0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth, it makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. and contact tracing and isolation that we would need to not only start to open up now, but to prevent a second worst wave in the fall. We cannot get there without the federal government. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace
1: filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics. We recognize that everyone's habits have changed and perhaps your listening time has changed. And for those of you who are still here with us, sticking with us, finding the in-between spaces to listen, we are so grateful and we're so encouraged by your messages. We also want to thank everyone who shared a message for Friday's episode. Your stories impacted so many people. We got a wonderful update that the listener who talked about foster children in St. Louis was able to connect with a church there who wants to support her agency's efforts. And that is one of many good things that are coming from the fact that you all reached out and shared your story. So thank you so much.
0: And thank you for all the wonderful feedback we got from everybody who listened to that episode and shared it on social media and encouraged others to listen
1: as well. So here's the agenda today. We're going to walk through a little bit of news. Then we are going to be joined by Trey Grayson, who is a former Secretary of State in Kentucky. He has worked at the Harvard Institute for Policy, and he's going to just walk us through a lot about upcoming elections given COVID-19, where policy and the business community are intersecting. And so it's a great conversation that we're excited to share with you. We'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics and we want to just begin by reminding you please and thank you to complete your census if you haven't already done it
0: it's so easy it doesn't take very long and chloe Wrote in to really make it real about how important that is. Her current work is coordinating a regional census hub in Michigan, the only state to lose population in the previous census, and in a community based, community driven effort to get people to fill them out. She says the goal of this work is to make sure that the hardest to count populations, often people of color, low income families, immigrants, and people experiencing homelessness, are not only counted but given voice and leadership in this effort. I'm also hoping this work is the transition I need to move into politics. I've always wanted to to bring a public health perspective into our political system. And hopefully this work is opening the door in that way. We have some great community partners and grantees working on this effort. I'm so proud of what we're doing as a region and as a state. I'm hoping you can continue promoting the census on your show and encourage your listeners to reach out to underserved populations to make sure they are counted. Now more than ever, census responses are so important. School lunches, Medicare, Medicaid, housing assistance, funding for health centers, and community emergency preparedness all depend on our census counts for their funding. This is also a political voice in Washington, D.C., and filling out the census is a way to make sure we have strong representation for our communities.
1: So get those census forms filled out. If you have any questions, we'll do our best to help you navigate it. The Frequently Asked Questions section on census.gov is really helpful. So if you are struggling, go there. It will probably answer your question, but take a few minutes. Do your duty. One thing we wanted to
0: talk about is not necessarily breaking news, but increasing coverage of the food supply and food insecurity situation in America and how if you're reading stories about both of these, you're going to want to scream into the void. Because what we have is tens of millions of pounds of American-grown produce rotting in the fields. We have milk being poured out, food being left to rot on the supply side. At the same time, we see lines and lines and lines outside food banks. We have food banks closing, This disjointed situation in which we have surplus food rotting and people going hungry. And it's incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly complicated. But we definitely wanted to give it a moment on the show to talk about and raise awareness about.
1: Part of this is failure at the Agriculture Department to move as quickly as other federal agencies in responding to COVID-19 You know, this is another example of where government can't fix everything, but there are moments when government coordination is one of the only ways to match supply and demand. And that's how Tom Vilsack put it. He was the agriculture secretary during the Obama administration. He told Politico, it's not that we have a lack of food. It's that the food is in one place and the demand is somewhere else, and they haven't been able to connect the dots. You've got to galvanize people. To add on to this problem, Many meat processing plants across the country have been hit hard by coronavirus and people following those guidelines to stay at home if you're sick is causing some of these plants to shut down. Two million chickens are set to be euthanized in Delaware and Maryland because of a lack of employees in the processing plants this weekend. Um, So we have millions of animals at risk for being killed and not eaten because of a lack of plant workers, which just brings all kinds of ethical questions to mind. I think this, again, is an example of the acceleration of some existing issues brought on by COVID-19, but it has devastating effects and is something that we really need to keep thinking and talking about and bringing some problem-solving skills to.
0: You know, this for me is illustrating something I'm seeing in lots of different places. I think you're also seeing this with the entire COVID response coming from the federal government or lack of a COVID response. You know, as I reported on the show on Friday, I got a COVID test in Paducah. Because our governor was asking people in my area to come get tested, whether or not they were exhibiting symptoms or were frontline workers, because we had the capacity. And I got messages, I don't understand why you have testing in Kentucky and we're struggling in New Jersey and we have all these outbreaks. And I said, it's because of a lack of a federal response. And, you know, we have conflicting guidance from federal officials. It's a really confused approach as states begin to ease restrictions. We don't have sufficient capacity. You know, we don't have the resources for states to be able to put in place the contact tracing that they need to do because it's expensive. You have to pay people. That's part of the problem with testing. And because the federal government can print money in a way that states can't, they can't step up and fill that void. And what's frustrating to me is what it feels like is the absence of a government response is being used to justify the argument that government is bad. See, government is incapable. We should never allow government to help solve a problem. We don't ever need federal government or federal. The presence of federal government is making everything worse. No, it's the absence of federal government. It's the absence of exactly what he's talking about in the agricultural department. That there sometimes you need the federal government to step in for a lot of reasons and fill the void to connect the dots to coordinate the response so that you don't have a flood of testing in some area and absence of testing in others, so that you don't have a meat processing problems where we're dumping food and hungry people in other parts of the country. You know, until we all decide to shut our borders down and act independently. United States of America are in this together and the, the complete and total absence of the federal government to me, you know, that it's the the impact of that is just compounding by the day and you see it play out in lots and lots of different areas. You know, I think this is true. We talk about this with Trey Grayson in the second section of the show with the CARES Act. You know, I think you see people, oh, we'll see. Look, it's just corporation at the highest order. The federal government started passing out money. And see, every time the federal government comes in, it's bad and it's corrupt and things go wrong. No, it's not that there was too much government. It's that there wasn't enough. There was no transparency. There was no regulation, partly by design of the Trump administration. And it's just so frustrating to
1: me that this narrative keeps keeps building and building and building. You know, I don't have all the answers here for myself, even in terms of how I feel about everything that's happening. Here is how I'm thinking about it right now. I am more Leaning toward the idea as we go through this crisis that government is neither good nor bad. It is just a tool that needs to show up sometimes and needs to stay out of the way other times. And when it shows up needs to be used correctly. And we are really bad in this country at looking at things as neutral and just Mm -hmm. thinking about when should they show up. I see the food supply chain as an example of both the absence and the presence of government as problematic because it is true that the absence of government serving a coordinating function right now is devastating. It is also mm-hmm. true that we have regulations about exactly what food may be donated in what size packages, how it can be transported that is preventing people from getting food to the places that need it most. And the government apparatus is so unwieldy that it can be difficult to change those regulations quickly enough to meet the demands of an emergency. Those aren't foolish regulations that were put in for no reason, right? We have them to protect us. And also sometimes protecting us from one thing uh, looks really silly when there's a much bigger thing to be protected from. My thinking right now is forming around the idea that probably the federal government's resources are allocated in such a thin way. I've been thinking about my old boss who always talked about how sometimes we would use our marketing dollars as sort of a peanut butter spread, that we would just spread it out so thinly among so many different causes that we really don't make much of a difference anywhere. And that's how I'm feeling about the federal government right now, that we have this peanut butter spread. Even with the CARES Act, we're just trying to do so many things at one time that we're not able to do any of them very well. And there are some things that are just uniquely the province of the federal government. And many of those things have been hamstrung by people like me who who believe we should restrict federal power because we don't want to pay for something that's not an urgent need. But the truth is, if we had properly been funding the CDC all along, if we had been thinking about the federal emergency stockpile as something worthy of massive infusions of money, even as we did not need it, especially when we did not need it, we would be much better positioned right now. And so, as I look at the whole picture, I have both agreement and disagreement with you, I think, on on government, but I just really wanna take a more neutral view and think like, what places do we need this tool and how can we deploy this tool effectively Every policy has trade-offs. Every policy has a downside. Every policy has the potential for and the actuality of some corruption associated with it. And that's true whether the impact is coming from government or culture or the private sector entirely or the nonprofit sector. We're human beings, so there's always going to be a downside. How do we maximize the upside and minimize the downside when we think about bringing in federal solutions?
0: I just think we're getting to a really dangerous place where there's zero trust that there ever can be a federal solution. And I think that's a really scary place to be in. You know, what is the alternative to no federal presence? Because I feel like we're getting really close to that, like to the idea that any government at all at the federal level is to be distrusted, is to be fought against, is to be protested, is a threat to liberty, is a threat to your constitutional rights. And, you know, it's just starting to kind of concern me. And I mean, it's always been out there, but it seems that, you know, there's there's never evidence that the federal government can help. Like you can't, that, that's not even becoming a valid, much less a moderate position that sometimes the government
1: is needed. I feel like that's a minority position that's getting a lot of attention right now because it's the interesting storyline. Do you think I'm wrong about that? I mean, I
0: just feel like I hear it. It's not just that I, I'm reading about it in news stories about the protest. I hear it from people. I hear it, this undercurrent. And, look, the problem is that there is lots of evidence to say, especially in recent American history, that the presence of the federal government often makes things worse. You know, I, underst- I I see the corruption already in the payment protection program. I was alive during Hurricane Katrina. I've read a lot of the, about the torture memo and our response to 9-11, much less the fact that we couldn't prevent 9-11. I mean, like, I could list and list and list all the good evidence. You don't need to be a conspiracy theorist to say the federal government has often made huge mistakes and made things worse. And, that, you know, it's, and it's just like it's feeding itself. So because that's true and then you have enough to really undercut any federal response, then you add to the list of times when the federal response was inadequate or corrupt or problematic. And so that feeds on itself. And it just feels like this feedback loop we can't get out of. And I... I don't know, but I, again, I, I can I can you know list all those things too, and yet what's the alternative? Because it seems like we're looking at the alternative now, which is the federal government doesn't do anything, and so far we have fifty five thousand Americans dead and an economy that's been decimated, and it just feels like I, I don't know, especially at, until November, if we continue under the Trump administration, how we break that cycle and say beyond just the local and state level where I do, I think you are seeing trust build. But they can only go so far. They can't print money. They can't pay an army of contact tracers and increased amounts of EPE and the supplies we need for testing to get testing to where we need to to open up our economy while in the face of decimated budgets when they can't print money. And it just feels like we're at a standstill where they've done what they can do. And we have a federal government, particularly an executive branch, unwilling to step in to fill the the hole, and an American populace that says, "See, see, this is what we said we told you was going to happen." And I just i'm i I feel like I don't know how to I don't know how we break out of that. I feel powerless.
1: I almost wish that the American populace were consistent enough to say, "See, that's what happened. What I see happening." And in sort of my Facebook sphere, for example, is just using everything as an opportunity to sort people based on where they are on the president. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole Mm -hmm. debacle with the disinfectant and the sunlight just eclipsed my Facebook feed over the weekend. And it was memes about how dumb the president is and passionate defenses of of the president's words and i looked at that i don't remember what this is called but have you ever been on that amusement park ride or like a county fair ride where you you get into a compartment and it's like you and two or three people in that compartment and the purpose of the ride is to simultaneously spin your compartment and spin the whole thing That is connected by the spokes. And you get shoved up against the wall. Yes. And so it's like it's like a scrambler, except you're scrambling on two different levels at once. And it feels like the whole goal is just to see how long you can stand this before you get so dizzy that you like lose your funnel cake and icy. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, that is how I feel right now in the social media Mm -hmm. dialogue about the president. I just I want off this ride because it makes me so dizzy to fight over the president's words, which are truly the least relevant thing to anything we could be talking about right now. I mean, who cares what he said at that press conference compared to the entire list of issues that people really need to be thinking about right now? Not that it doesn't matter. I get that when the governor of Maryland says, we're getting lit up with calls about whether it's safe for people to drink Lysol. We got a problem. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the bully pulpit, but in a way, I'm just ready to move on from that argument. I would rather be fighting about what's the proper role of the federal government than what President Trump just said. I don't know. Overall, to me, I have concerns about what a federal response would look like. It it makes me nervous to talk about federal contact tracing. I'll say it out loud. At the same time, I don't think the federal government ought to be competing with states for those supplies if it's going to leave the states on their own. We just have no consensus in this country around what we expect people to do and no aptitude, it seems, for problem solving and seeing that one answer is not going to do it. We need A federal approach to testing as well as coordinated state measures, right, as well as local measures. We need federal guidance on being healthy at work as well as state and local guidance and regional guidance. When I read all these articles about what's going to happen with the economy, they are written so passively as though the economy is just this mystical thing out there. And hopefully it'll be kind to us at the end of all this. No, the economy is like, what are you doing with your dollars right now? In addition to everything else that's going on, like we just need to all step up and recognize there's a lane for everybody else to step up to. And that includes the federal government.
0: I just what it feels like to me is with regards to the reopening that everyone is so anxious to step forward into, we have reached the limits of what state and local leaders can do to get us to that point. Like the level of testing and contact tracing and isolation that we would need to not only start to open up now, but to prevent a second worse wave in the fall, we cannot get there without the federal government. I think we're seeing that. That's where we are right now. It feels like we're stuck. Testing is not ramping up. Testing is not changing on a nationwide level. We're stuck. And I don't see how even these regional alliances can get us there. Like, it, we need the resources, particularly the financial resources of the federal government. And it's just, you know, it's frustrating. And I think that conversation about the disinfectant is the same thing, which is. It is it's a different version of the same conversation, which is. You can't trust the government, you can only trust him or you can't trust the government because he is the government. I got a lot of messages that said, are you really interested in a vaccine? I would never trust a vaccine from the Trump administration. Or I would never trust a vaccine that comes from Bill Gates. Like it's all this really intense foundation of distrust that I can't necessarily say, oh, you should never be distrustful. You have nothing to base that on. I get it. But I'm not sure how we deal with a global pandemic that truly connects us all on a
1: such a thick foundation of distrust well before we move on to talking with Trey Grayson about some of the policy things that are happening Um, I want to take just a second to update you on a few COVID-19 developments. If you are not engaged in the news outside of Pansu politics, we want you to be sure to know that the World Health Organization is now telling us there is no good evidence that contracting COVID-19 means that you will be immune from getting it again. We just don't know yet. But the point of this is that governments talking about some kind of immunity passport are out ahead of the science. The science is not there yet. There is also reporting about a serious risk of blood clots to COVID-19 patients, even people who are relatively young and healthy. And so if you are continuing to have discussions with people who don't take this seriously, it is not just that you are going to get something like a flu. Again, just a reminder that there, if Blood clots are so scary. I lost a family member way too young because of a blood clot during an otherwise routine procedure. So this is not something to take lightly. And there there seems to be a – the Washington Post describes it as a mysterious risk associated with blood clots and COVID-19. And then finally, the CDC has added to fever, cough, and shortness of breath – New symptoms of chills, repeated shaking with chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, and new loss of taste or smell. Some of those we've known about for a while, but they are officially part of the CDC list at this point.
0: And as always, we want to share your compliments to your local and state leaders. We heard from Jennifer complimenting her governor, Kate Brown of Oregon. She says, while I have not found Kate Brown to be as inspiring or charismatic as Kentucky's governor, she did a very good thing this week. She sent 140 ventilators to New York. I also love that response from my friends on Facebook has been
1: universally positive. I have always liked Kate Brown, and I think she's plenty inspiring and charismatic. Um, I also don't think that's a word people use for Katie Bashir very often, but I appreciate it. (laughs) It's so funny to hear that about Governor Bashir, too, but he's doing a great job. Okay. We also heard from Meredith about a few local leaders in Alabama, including Birmingham's mayor, Randall Woodfin, who has been calm and competent in getting things done. He even made a quarantine playlist on Spotify. Well done, Mayor <laughs> Woodfin. Um, her principal, Melissa Hatter, is leading our school so well. I love this compliment Because, oh, my goodness, having a good principal right now matters. Mm -hmm. Principal Hatter is sending daily announcement videos to students to keep them connected to our school. She's contacted each faculty member personally to check in, take safety guidelines very seriously. Her guidance in distance learning is less is more and don't overwhelm the parents. Yet she is still valuing the contributions of special teachers like music. And Meredith is so grateful for that. And her pastor, Buddy Gray, canceled services at church the first week they had confirmed cases in Alabama, explained to people how we are loving our neighbors by staying home. And this is at a large suburban Southern Baptist church where the majority of members at that point were not likely to take it seriously. And Meredith is really grateful for Pastor Gray's wise leadership.
0: We also heard from Rachel complimenting Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. She says that she has been doing a really good balancing act between hardline leadership and humor there's been some really funny memes and the mayor has said she enjoys them and she's glad that they're making people laugh she made a really great video asking people to stay home and save lives and she's been working in really good partnership with governor pritzker and has worked to turn mccormick place into a makeshift hospital so chicago is ready if the outbreak worsens
1: thank you all for continuing to share inspiring examples of leadership during this crisis next up we're going to be talking with trey grayson Trey served as a two-term secretary of state for the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where he was recognized as a national leader in government in innovation and election modernization. He served as chair of the Republican Association of Secretaries of State and as president of the National Association of Secretaries of State. Trey has also served as director of the Harvard Institute of Politics, as well as on the bipartisan Presidential Commission on Election Administration. And I can tell you that Trey is someone who's been very professionally and personally gracious to me, and we are excited to share some of his thinking with all of you. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy
0: world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, dot com slash pantsy.
1: Thanks for being with us today, Trey. I wanted to start by asking you about your experience as Kentucky Secretary of State. We've had a lot of publicity around Kentucky Secretary of State and our elections here lately. But on a broader scale, what should we be thinking about in terms of election security, specifically as it relates to November?
2: So, first, I think there's just got to be a recognition that we're not going to have a normal election in November. Uh, we're not going to be out of this pandemic hopefully we'll be in a much better spot in November than we are today, but it's not going to be like it was in November of 2018 or 2019. So uh, whether you're an election administrator, a policymaker, or a voter or anybody else involved in the elections process, you just have to approach it with that. And, and then the other thing to keep in mind is that we have to work right now on November. It's almost too late to be able to implement changes for November in an ideal world, now we don't live in an ideal world, <laughs> and a lot of states are having to adapt. But it's not too early to make decisions about November, and you're going to have to. We're going to have to make assumptions, and I start with the first assumption: it's not going to be a normal election. We're going to have more social distancing. We're going to have at-risk populations whose considerations, whether they're poll workers or voters, we're going to have to deal with. So we're going to have to make assumptions today guide our decisions down the road. Just like businesses are making decisions where they're canceling things or pushing things off, we're gonna have to make decisions today on elections. And so I think that's a good framework to approach election administration or voting or just our elections in general for November of 2020. We've seen some examples of states that you were caught in the middle of the pandemic and they weren't ready. Now that's not to fault of their own. It's not something you gamed out. And so uh, the election calendar caught Wisconsin and caught Ohio and a few other states in a really bad spot. Uh, they could have handled it better, but they were in a tough spot even if they had all been on the same page and had, um, you know, were trying to solve the problem. Other states like Kentucky were able to push their primary back a couple of months. But we still, you know, and our secretary of state, our governor, our state board are doing a great job. But we have about two months to plan this election, a little bit less than two months. Uh, it's a primary, so <clears throat> it'll be lower turnout states that are looking November can look at the states like uh, Kentucky that delayed their elections to June for some guidance on how things might go. And I'll just stop there because I could go on. There's a lot we could talk about the elections and I want to be guided by your questions.
0: Well, I do think as we're, you know, making assumptions, looking to the guidance of some primary states as we move into the fall, I wonder, based on your experience, how much of that planning needs to include permanent changes that you think would be beneficial moving forward as a country forever? And how many do you think need to be temporary?
2: Well, so there's there's a couple things that are in, in tension here. One is we are in the middle of an emergency, and some of the ways that we can adapt how we run our elections can only work in an emergency. And what I mean by that is in Kentucky, for example, the state is moving to allow vote by mail without an excuse. The way that is happening is through an emergency declaration that can be made when there's a state of emergency, which means that in 2022, let's say, we're out of a state of emergency, Kentucky would have to pass laws to allow more vote by mail. Now it's probably really expedient to focus on um, using those power of emergencies to get things done today, and it's also easier to get to political consensus on some things. You know, for example, vote by mail is one where there are different views on it, sometimes ideological, sometimes partisan. But if you agree to only make that decision in the context of the pandemic, you can get to consensus more easily. The downside of that is it costs the the secure ballot box, for example, that you put in the courthouse to allow voters to drop off their ballots on Election Day costs the same amount of money, whether you're using it only in 2020 or whether you're using it for many years down the road. Um, The way you train might be different if you know you're doing this going forward. So um, we might make some, and and the different kinds of investments you might make uh, with uh, other equipment and other procedures, you might be able to be more cost-effective. But it may be that given the emergency situation, that the best scenario for policymakers, especially if there's a disagreement on the going forward, is to, to just get to consensus as quickly as you can so you can make sure that the, the primaries, those that are left, and the generals are successful. As a country, we are moving to more early voting, meaning not on election day uh, or vote by mail, um, the different terms, these different things. Mean different things, um, so there's a, there's a trend in that direction, but there there are differences between you know in person early voting, which I personally really like, and no excuse vote by mail, which I'm less a fan of, although I recognize that we absolutely need it this year, um, and so you're just going to have to have find that balance, and, and I know that administrators and policymakers are are struggling with that.
1: Can you give us a window into why you prefer early in person voting to vote by mail?
2: So the reason why I prefer no excuse early voting, which means you can vote in advance of election day, but in person without an excuse versus no excuse vote by mail, is basically colored by my experience in Kentucky politics, where we do have in our, uh, especially in rural areas, some vote buying that takes place. And I think that election security is much easier on an election day or an election day like experience, which you can. You can adapt to early voting, where you have poll workers in person. Uh, people are checking in; they're, you know, meeting some type of identification requirement. I don't want to get into strict IDs. Well, we can in a later conversation, but not, not for the the, the reason why I prefer one over the other has nothing to do with the type of ID law, but it's that experience of in person where, when it's vote by mail, it's really easy to walk down the the nursing home hallways and. Mm. And have people fill it out, and and we've seen that in Kentucky, not in big races at presidential level or senate level or congressional level, we see it in county office. And Beth, you're, you have family experience. I'm not saying with vote fraud or vote buying like that, but you're, you know, you're, you can have family members involved in local politics. And Kentucky has a lot of small governments. Those small governments are influential in their communities, and they usually mean some jobs, which makes the stakes a little bit different. So we've seen that, and that's why I like in-person voting. Uh, as opposed to vote by mail, I just like the security. Now, the downside is it costs more. Vote by mail is, uh, you know, on the whole is cheaper because you don't have to have those people in person for several days. Um, but I guess that's the price I'm willing to pay uh, in general in a non pandemic world <laughs> for uh, my press policy preference. And my, because well, the overall goal a... is we should vote the way we live.
0: You know, what we've been talking a lot about is what a pandemic world does is accelerates change and really clarifies problems. And it seems to me that this is probably true in the context of our elections as well, that anything we're talking about or any problems we're trying to address as far as voter empowerment or accessibility or voter fraud, voter reform, like this is it's it was all true before COVID-19. COVID-19 is just accelerating and intensifying these issues.
2: I think that's exactly right. We're seeing it in the business world with the move, uh, with mm-hmm. with the challenges with retail, uh, and we're absolutely seeing it in voting. And, and what's interesting is we've seen, I don't know if we term the term, disasters or big cataclysmic events cause voting laws to change over time. Our first absentee ballots came in the Civil War when a lot of the voters that President Lincoln needed to help him get reelected were out on the battlefield, not at home. Mm-hmm. So absentee balloting was created. The World War One, where um, we saw the expansion of the, the franchise to women, and a lot of that was we saw women taking on much bigger roles, and it became even more ridiculous to deny them the right to vote. And similar with um, expansion of the vote to youth during the Vietnam era, where we were sending eighteen-year-olds mm-hmm. off to fight and die for their country, and they weren't allowed to vote on those decisions uh, to elect the lawmakers to make the, who were making those decisions. And and probably even though there was a little bit of a delay, African Americans fighting in World War II and then ultimately into Korea, similar thing coming into the Civil Rights Act. Like, how how can we not have them the right, give them the right to vote in certain parts of this country when they're fighting and dying to defend everybody else's right to vote? So, yeah, I think this is a real clarifying moment. We're not going to go back to the way we did elections prior to this. Absolutely.
1: I want to go back to the first thing you said, which is you need to start now for November and it's almost too late. I think... I have a lot of sympathy for that, probably because I spent so many years working with lawyers. But I wonder for the person out there who's listening, thinking, why is it so damn hard? Like, I feel like we have that sense about everything right now. <laughs> this is America. Right. Why can't we figure it out quickly? So can you help us understand wh- why it is so damn hard?
2: Sure. So if you just look at vote by mail and those who most everybody who's listening has probably had to vote by mail at some point in their lives, maybe they went away to college or on vacation or something like that. So when you vote by mail, you've got a, a, a piece of paper that's your ballot, and that's enclosed in an envelope, which is sealed. And then that sealed envelope is enclosed in a larger envelope. The That ballot is somehow returned to the vote counters. And when they count the votes, they determine the eligibility first on the outer envelope. And then once that ballot is deemed to be eligible to be counted, they set that outer ballot aside. And then they set the other ballot into another stack and then they later count that actual vote. And that way we keep the anonymity. You know, they don't literally open it right there and say, oh, um, you know, Trey graysons he's eligible to vote. Yep, this is his ballot. And oh, look, he voted for uh, Donald Trump. I didn't. (laughs) So um, so you get a couple of things here. Those are envelopes are unusually sized. You can't just go to Staples and buy those or order them on Amazon. It takes a while to produce those envelopes. You have to print instructions on them. You have to design instructions. You have to train people. Um, so when we're when we're ramping up capacity, we're going to need a lot more envelopes. That's going to require, um, you know, then states have to think about, do they mail out ballots to everybody? Do they mail out a postcard, which is I think is the plan in Kentucky and a lot of other states alerting people to this. Um, Kentucky's building an online ballot request uh, system. So they have to do that. Uh, you have to hire more people.
0: You have to hope there are no supply chain issues with all those envelopes.
2: Yeah. And it's also, OK, how are we going to count the votes? I mean, even if you're Colorado or Arizona or the other Western states that do a lot of this, they're going to have to keep everybody six feet apart. <laughs> you know, so even in those states, there are going to be changes. And so it can take a lot of time to get those supply chains out. We have um, military and overseas voters. We need to get those ballots in the mail 45, 50 more days in advance. Because, um, you know, in a November election means you have to get them in the mail, just say two months out. You know, it's not quite so a month and a half, two months out. So now you're back to, you know, September, late September. And, um, you know, you got to wait for the prime. So it just it just takes a long time to do all this. And uh, the EAC, the Elections Assistance Commission, not the East Australian current from mm-hmm. uh, Finding Nemo, but the, EA, the other EAC, the less famous EAC, a couple weeks ago, put together a re- a, some guidelines and some some assistance. That's what the A stands for, assistance. And they basically said, you need to start now for November, if you're going to do all this, just because of all the bumps in the road that it's going to take. So yeah, that's why it takes so long. Um, oh, and by the way, all this costs money and unfortunately Congress put $400 million in the cares act for, um, elections, um, and then there was other some other money. Actually, I think it's more than $400 million. I think that number is wrong. So I apologize. But I'm off the top of my head. I'm having a mental blank. And there was also some money in last year's funding bill for just election security. And states are going to tap that money as well. But that's all one time money, which goes back to the earlier question about, um, you know, permanence versus temporary nature of some of these changes.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your canopy-filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
0: Well, it seems like every struggle, everything that is so damn hard, is also an opportunity. What do you hope comes out of this five years down the line when we see changes that aren't just linked to the emergency nature of a pandemic?
2: One is, you know, in states where you see people setting aside partisanship to try to work together, hopefully that'll translate going forward with um, with how we run our elections. I think, two, one of the things we have in state elections is that you hear the term laboratories of democracy. We're going to see a whole lot of movement towards You know, more vote by mail, uh, more dropping off of ballots and drive by polling places and things like that. So we're going to get some good ideas and some good data on how this works. Um, I also hope that um, this is one of the things that's really frustrated me is there's no data that there's a partisan advantage to vote by mail. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a couple ways of looking at it. I mean, one is we'll see. who are the who are the um, what's the base of the Republican Party right now? Older voters. Who are the people who probably shouldn't go to the polls because of being um, in a high risk categories? Older voters. So if you're a Republican, you really want vote by mail <laughs> or, or your po- folks can't win. Conversely, and this is what I find the irony is that Republicans, some many Republican leaders, President Trump being the most high profile, are opposed to vote by mail. Many Democratic leaders are pushing it. But one of the challenges with vote by mail is there are more opportunities for your ballot not to count. You you mess up that data on the outer envelope. And if you were there on election day, there would have been a poll worker to help you out. Uh, or maybe you left a race blank or voted twice in one race. If you're on election day, the scanner, because most people now vote on paper, will reject the ballot if you have if you've overvoted that more than one candidate counted or voted for when you're not allowed the you're only allowed to vote for the one or undervoted oftentimes you get a little beep and say hey did you mean to undervote well when you don't have that assistance there the poll worker we know that ballots are going to be rejected on election day well democrats tend to believe that more of their voters are these infrequent voters who are more likely to struggle outside of that polling place and so there is this interesting tension where the both parties have bought into the stereotype but the reality is. Neither is actually correct, <laughs> in their beliefs, and so out of this, I just hope we get past that and just say, let's vote where it's convenient. Let's not, you know, fight about these things, and especially let's not fight when we're wrong <laughs> about our beliefs mm-hmm. on on these things. We shouldn't anyway. We should just run a good election and let the candidate, you know, win on the merits. But uh, I've just been really struck by some of the some of the parties uh, pushing these things. And I mean, really making arguments that don't seem valid to me.
1: Well, let's think more about that intersection of politics and business, because you have experience leading the Chamber of Commerce um, locally and in addition to your experience at Harvard. So tell us about what the next iteration of the CARES Act should look like as you assess how it's performed thus far and where it's fallen short.
2: At our law firm, I work for Frost Brown Todd, which is a big law firm in the middle part of Fly over country, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, we're working with a lot of clients on this, and we're following the CARES Act really closely. There are a couple of big questions that the members of Congress have to add, um, answer with, you know, I think that we call this 4.0. The tweak last week they're referring is 3.5 as, the, as far as mm-hmm. the different bills that have been passed. So for 4.0, there are a couple of um, flashpoints. One is local and state government assistance. Their tax revenues are plummeting at a time when they're having to spend a lot more money on unemployment claims, but also just like revamping their unemployment systems to be able to handle the demand. Um, they're having to, you know, spend more in public health, paying for that PPE. Somebody's paying for that. That costs money. So they're having a lot of stress and they're also having their tax revenues decline. Unlike the federal government, they cannot print money. Um, they don't have a federal a central banking system. So. That's going to, and we've seen this fight. Senator McConnell made the comment about, you know, states going through bankruptcy. uh, Don't look to the federal government for a bailout for your prior profligate ways. But the reality is, is that whether a state was profligate or not, or had a big rainy day fund or not, nobody had a rainy day fund outside of I think Alaska, (laughs) and they're very unique to sustain the state's finances. And so that's one area. The second is. this is pr- looks like it's going to be a longer uh, financial hit than probably was assumed a few months ago or I guess we weren't in this a few months ago a few weeks ago a month ago when cares act was first passed it just passed. felt like so this, a decade
1: ago it's totally equal cool. yeah.
2: yeah yeah i mean i remember all the jokes in march ended. it felt like it was you know a forever month and now april's nearly the end and it's the same thing but so these ideas of uh, you know the loans the ppp loans you know quickly ran out of money they put a bunch of money in last week they're going to run out of it again this week and so trying to maintain those payrolls, um, can we keep doing that? Should we keep doing that? How do you write those laws in a manner that benefits the small businesses, which need help, also are political beneficiaries, but balancing the fact that you know, there's employees who work for the big firms too that don't want to be laid off, that need the money. And so you know, you can complain about Ruth Chris getting all that money, but they have a lot of employees. And when you're the employee of Ruth Chris, and you're the employee of the small restaurant, from an employee standpoint, you're the same thing. And so we have to wrestle uh, with that. Um, there's a strong argument to be made for some more elections funding. That's another area to look at. And, and then I think, and there was a little bit of help in this la- in 3.5, but the, the rural hospitals and other hospitals, they've not been allowed to do their elective procedures. And That's where they make the money to pay for um, a lot of the other things. It's kind of like college sports, basketball and football on the men's side make all the money and then allow you to have a fully robust um, intercollegiate program. Same thing with with hospitals. The heart surgeries and other, you know, orthopedic surgeries. Those are some things where they use that money to pay for the things that don't pay for that that don't, you know, where they can't cover the cost. So there's no real margin. So those are a couple of the big areas I think from a from a legislative standpoint. Um, you start to hear conversations about liability concerns with people who are pivoting to PPE manufacturing, should we encourage more of that? Um, but then the flip side, again, is what if you're the person who buys the PPE, gives it to your employees or, or patients, and it doesn't work? Somebody should be responsible for that. So is the government going to assume that responsibility financially as well? Um, and then last and not least is the debt. At some level, you know, this is a lot of money. But if you don't prop up industries and businesses and employees, um, then the, 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 that could be the least of your concern. So I think we've kind of wrestled, wrestled, but you're going to see more of that, I think, over the next, uh, you know, in the conversations about this next bill, that it looks like we'll start in earnest, uh, you know, not... I guess in about a week, I think the Senate's coming back, and that will be uh, a big topic of conversation.
0: It seems like one of the issues is just the lack of transparency. If the idea in elections is that we'll gather lots of data and see what works and see what doesn't, and yet we're passing out all this money, particularly with the Paycheck Protection Program, with no transparency as to what the companies are getting, you know, the only reason we know that uh, Shake Shack gave it back is because they told everybody. So, you know, I just... I wonder if that transparency is really hobbling, not only the efforts to get the money where it needs to go, but any sort of, like we said, future efforts to make sure what we're learning during this pandemic can follow through into long-term solutions to the problems that were there before the pandemic.
2: You're absolutely right. Uh, I should have said transparency. I'm glad you added it. It's one there's always tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch. You know, the legislative branch wants more transparency. It's how they hold that executive accountable. That's how we in the public hold the executive accountable. Sometimes transparency slows down the process, uh, but that's a price we are willing to pay to avoid um, corruption and to help us judge whether the whether the programs are being run effectively. And so, yeah, that'll be another one. We There needs to be more transparency. And the irony is when you're an executive branch and you object to that, usually you get legislative hearings anyway. And um, in fact, you might get more transparency <laughs> if you don't put some into the law, uh, put some teeth into the law, and set up some advisory committees that way. Uh, the Congress, especially when the one party controls at least one chamber of Congress, uh, then as opposed to the administration, you are always going to get some transparency. But we'd like to get it quicker. You know, we'd like to be able to know. Like the Shake Shack one is a good example. Um, they also, you know, they figured out that there was some private equity dollars that were out there and that they could get some good publicity for it. But that's fine. You know, I like when incentives are aligned. You know, they didn't need to take taxpayer dollars. They found a better product and I'm going to go buy more Shake Shack. Fine. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I I can't wait till I can go to Lexington because that's the closest Shake Shack to where I live. (laughs) But I'll drive an hour for that.
1: Mm -hmm. Thinking about the business community and especially, you know, when you're working at a place like a Chamber of Commerce, you have to think about not only your uh, hundreds of employees kind of businesses, but also the the guy who has three employees, right? And how how those small businesses adapt. I was listening to Governor Bashir yesterday talking about businesses that want to reopen and how they are going to be responsible for acquiring their own PPE. And these are going to be businesses that sometimes have never thought about gloves or masks or anything like that. And it struck me that that is probably both the fair answer, that the state should not become a supplier of PPE for every business in Kentucky, and also just an incredibly unfair one. If you think about how businesses are able to compete, if hospitals aren't able to get everything they need right now and they're used to tapping those supply chains, how is the massage therapist supposed to be to be in it? So I wonder what, from a policy perspective, we ought to be doing about that or, or what? how can businesses in the private sector support each other? Like, how do we solve that problem?
2: It's a really tough one. I'm actually, for our firm, helping out internally with helping us to figure out. We have eight states in which we have offices. We've got 13 offices spread over those eight states. And helping us to figure out how can we reopen, what are those rules and guidelines? So I've been watching as states in our footprint, which are primarily draw a circle around Kentucky and Cincinnati. And, you know, those are our states. And and you're absolutely right. So you've got, it's on them to provide PPE. You know, if you're a restaurant and you're going to reopen, every state that's talked about this has said you get to upgrade at 50% capacity so you can spread your tables out so people can have more social distance. If you are, um, I was on a call this morning with uh, some folks and there was an event Venue and they said that, you know, they have their first wedding booked in mid-June. They said, we're not sure whether we can have it or not, but we've got it booked. It's 10 people, 10 guests, but then they're going to have to have like 10 staff members because they're going to have to clean the bathrooms every 15 minutes.
0: Mm.
2: You know, no waiting rooms like the massage therapist you talked about. He or she's not going to be able to have, let's just say she, because it's easier. And um, she's not going to be able to have people wait inside. They're going to have to wait in their cars. Um, and figure out that system. That's gonna. They'll have to. She'll have to do more cleaning um, of the equipment than normal. So she won't be able to turn as have to schedule as many customers. Um, there's a lot of real burdens on on them. A restaurant owner I was talking to recently said that they're gonna keep a heavy emphasis on takeout because they're gonna need that extra takeout revenue to offset the decline of um, in service, you know, in person revenue. Even if they completely filled up, they're gonna be at fifty percent. Um, And they anticipate not filling up completely because people are still, even if you're allowed to go out, people are still going to probably be personally reluctant. Um, We saw this on the front end is if you look at some of the data, people started sheltering in place um, earlier than the mandates went in. We were already starting to do that. There's no reason to think that when we're allowed to reopen our economies and our restaurants and businesses, that people are going to immediately go back to what they were. They're still going to have that level of reluctance. Um, it just—it's just all of what makes you know things like PPE and other small business loan assistance all the more help important because you're not going to be able to be get back to normal. The good thing about PPE for smaller businesses, and not in the healthcare capacity, is again this goes back to a restaurant. I heard they were—you know—this one restaurant was saying we're going to make fun masks that are kind of on theme with our restaurant. <laughs> um, you can make masks at home. My daughter's making them, so that, that kind of PPE. But things like disinfectants and latex gloves and other things, um, hopefully those supply chains will be able to ramp up more quickly. You won't have the the sophisticated masks that healthcare employers need and the plastic face shields. Um, so maybe some of the you know some of the PPE for businesses won't be as hard to obtain necessarily, uh, but it's still an added cost to um, you know low margin businesses. And so, um, you know, are you, are you better off opening in that uncertainty? You're better off staying closed. Uh, can you can you accumulate that debt and then pay it off you know, later by staying closed? But, you know, absorb that uncertainty because maybe you accumulate less debt. These are all really hard decisions. Fortunately, trade associations are stepping up to help provide guidance for their individual industries and sectors. And it looks like the states are starting to follow them uh, today. Uh, we're recording this around noon on Monday April 27th. And today, Governor DeWine in Ohio, who I think has done an amazing job, is going to announce his reopening plan. And I'm really interested to see somebody who's been pretty thoughtful and, and sober and appears to be really competent, um, how he approaches reopening uh, compared to some of the other states that were. I maybe have had not been as big a fan as how some of those other states have handled this and are now starting to reopen. So I'll, I'll be tuning in today at 2 to see DeWine's approach. And I'm sure his approach will impact uh, Governor Bashir and Governor Holcomb in the neighboring states, because they seem to be working pretty much in tandem on a lot of things.
0: Well, Trey, we really appreciate, it. I think, your overlap of expertise in, with elections and with the Chamber of Commerce has been a really, really valuable perspective as we look at these uh, long-term problems, short-term emergency solutions, and what that means for all of us moving forward.
1: Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Know that I am very, very late to this party, but I have finally started watching Schitt's Creek, oh. and it is as delightful as advertised. I'm really enjoying it. It is about what I can handle right now. At the end of a long day, when we have finally gotten the kids in bed and I'm ready to collapse, I love David so much on that show that I wish he were my neighbor. I just think it's it's wonderful. It's fun to see the home alone mom in a totally different role. I've always loved her because of that movie and she is fantastic on Shits Creek. So, hooray. I'm glad I I'm glad that I saved it for this time of life.
0: Okay, here's what I'm thinking about. That it is true that I very much value my public school education and public school teachers, and I'm grateful for the education I received. And also, this opportunity is putting in stark relief vast holes <laughs> in my knowledge, particularly when it comes to science and math. So my kids and I have been doing the Big History Project, um, which is really cool. It literally starts at the Big Bang and then goes all the way through like modern history and tries to put everything in perspective. And there's just so much about that area of science of chemistry and Um, I'm also learning a lot through our book club book, The Big Thirst, about water and all of that that I just didn't know and didn't understand. I think also I'm realizing because of all the coverage of the economy, corporate America, particularly with regards to debt, how much I don't understand about that part of our world and how it functions. And so like all this homeschooling is making me realize
1: that I still have a lot to learn as a student. I don't think you should feel inadequate about that at all. I mean, you know, lots of things, and there's just always more to know. And I think that's lovely. And it's good to, like, return to some of those things, too, because I, what I'm finding is Jane is doing a lot of things that sound vaguely familiar to me. I'm sure that I studied (laughs) it at some point. But Mm -hmm. having all the context that I have now as an adult makes me see it totally differently. And so I think some of it is probably you did learn it. At one point, you just didn't learn it in a way that really sinks in and and recognize the importance of it the way you do now.
0: I do really think some of it was... I very much internalized the narrative that science and math is not for girls. I mean, I was born in 1981, okay? I was before this. We were coming up before that girls in STEM was a thing. And I think I really just, I mean, I, I we were around for the math is hard Barbie. I always quote her wrong. If I got it wrong, I know whatever the exact quote Barbie said. But, you know, I I think I really internalized that and I internalized it as subjects that I didn't have any interest in. Um even today I'll still make jokes about it. like I don't do math, I went to law school. And I'm realizing like that was really harmful and it's not necessarily true that I wasn't interested in those subjects or didn't find things that I really liked. But, you know, it just felt easier to lean into the stuff that I was interested in and was sort of safe, a safe topic. Or maybe the f- idea that I liked politics, was wasn't which wasn't necessarily a girl friendly topic, was enough and I wasn't trying to fight a multi front battle.
1: I have a little tip for those of you out there with four year olds. Um, maybe not all four-year-olds, but around that age, because I've been thinking a lot about this and how I wish from an early age I had been pushed more on math and science. I did the same thing, Sarah. I knew it was kind of not a girl's thing. I wasn't in love with it. I didn't have teachers who were as good in math and science as in everything else. Um, So I gravitated away from it too. And I really don't want that to happen with my girls. So um, with Ellen, I decided last week to do a little exercise about graphs because I want her to get excited about scientific literacy and translating numbers as, as pictures. So I made just a really simple grid and we did an exercise where we called a bunch of our family members and had them FaceTime with us while Ellen rolled dice for them. And then she counted up what they got on the dice, and she made a bar graph showing everybody's rolls of the dice. So she got to say hello to everybody, Uh, It was really fun to see all the grandparents. We had a couple different colors of dice so so she could ask them, which color do you want? We talked about, gosh, everybody in our family wants the green dice. How fun is that? Um, And then we saw the graph results. So she learned how a graph works and we saw that you're more likely to roll a six. And, you know, it was just lots of different concepts embedded in this one really simple thing that she had a ton of fun with and is excited to do again.
0: Listen, there's all kinds of graph opportunities with uh, sugary treats we did a lucky charms graph on st patrick's day with the different marshmallows Mm, fun you can also do skittles graphs Mm -hmm. yep skittles
1: m&ms any sort of multicolored sugary treat endless graph opportunities We hope that you are finding lots of good activities out there, whether it be for your own lifelong learning or for the lifelong learning of others. Thank you for making us part of that. We hope that we contribute to your thinking in positive ways. This week, I'm so excited, Sarah. It's Supreme Court Week on the Nightly Nuance. In addition to Sarah and me checking in every day on how we're doing with coronavirus and the news developments around it, you can hear little mini podcasts from me about the cases that the court is handing down beginning on Monday, the day that we're recording with the Clean Water Act. And I hope you'll join us there until we're in your ears again on Friday. Keep it nuanced, you
0: Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Productions. Elise Knapp.